Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you all so much for showing up. So I'm very excited about this episode. So if you view it as something like a series, uh, this episode would be uh, part two in a series on reading financial statements. So uh, we had this earlier episode about uh, how to read a balance sheet. Why is a balance sheet important for a business and how we as investors should learn to read the balance sheet. And uh, after I completed this episode, I got a lot of requests uh, from people to do the other two financial statements as well. So can you do a, an episode on the income statement and can you do another episode on the cash flow statement so that we'll have all three financial statements? And I thought that was a great idea. And so uh, in, in that vein, this is the second episode in that series. So we are going to be talking about the income statement in this particular episode. And uh, it's, it's not like any one financial statement is more important than the others or anything like that. Investors should learn to read all three financial statements, the balance sheet, the income statement, and the cash flow statement. Uh, but it's just uh, the, the, the set of concepts associated with an income statement is different from the set of concepts that we need to know when we are reading a balance sheet and so on. So it makes sense to cover them in different episodes. Uh, so let's let's start with the simplest thing. What what is an income statement? Uh, so a balance sheet is uh, something like a snapshot of a particular company. So if if you have a company, you you take a snapshot of all all its assets and liabilities on a particular date and then report those, and that makes up a, uh, a balance sheet. So a balance sheet is something like the state of a company at a given point in time. Whereas an income statement is not like that. It's not a state thing. It's not the state of a company at any particular point in time. It is what happened in the company uh, during a particular period of time. So say a, a particular quarter or a particular year or something like that. So it, it is more of a, a, a flow statement. So there are these uh, uh, financial statements. There are, uh, there are two kinds of financial statements. There's a state uh, statement and a flow statement. So a state statement just says, okay, at the end of a particular period or at a particular point in time, these are all the assets and liabilities that the company had. So that is reporting on the state of a company at a particular point. Whereas a flow says, Okay, during this period of time, uh, this is all the money that came into the company and this is all the, uh, all the money that flowed out of the company. And so uh, the company made so much money from uh, time A to time B. And so between times A and B, what happened at the company? So a uh, uh, an income statement uh, tells us uh, how much money a company made uh, between two well-defined points in time. So maybe the start of the year and the end of a year or the start of a quarter and the end of a quarter, something like that. So during a quarter or year, what were the company's sales? Uh, what were the company's expenses? And then the sales uh, minus the expenses, those are the company's profits. Uh, how much in profits did the company make over this period of time? And of course, there are various line items to, to this. So. Uh, if you have sales, uh, sales may not be as, as simple. So lots of companies, they report their sales uh, in, in terms of a number of segments. So we have something like um, 
you know, maybe, maybe the company has lots of international operations. So they report sales in America versus uh, sales in Asia versus sales in uh, other parts of the world and, and so on. So, so sales itself might be composed of multiple line items there. Similarly with, with expenses, uh, there are various different kinds of expenses uh, that a company has. So uh, one, one uh, main kind of expense is called cost of goods sold. So when, when you have uh, sales, uh, co cost of goods sold is basically uh, all, all the costs that a company incurred just to uh, procure the goods that it later sells. So uh, to take a simple example, if you, if you, if you look at a, a retailer like Home Depot, for example, um, if you just take so so let's say, let's say Home Depot sells a, a can of paint or whatever to to a contractor. Now, how much did uh, Home Depot pay for that can of paint? That is cost of goods sold. And how much did Home Depot collect from the contractor uh, when it sold it to him? That is revenue. So if if it sold that can of paint for uh, say hundred dollars, but uh, it it cost Home Depot only fifty dollars to buy that uh, can of paint from its supplier, then Cost of goods sold is $50, um, um, uh, revenues is $100, and the difference between revenues and cost of goods sold, which is gross profit, that is $50. Uh, so what, what, what exactly goes into this cost of goods sold is um, uh, essentially the, the, the cost of the raw materials and uh, uh, th things like that. So what, whatever it costs Home Depot to lay its hands on that uh, can of paint. So that that doesn't include other costs that Home Depot has, like um, you know the, the the store operating expenses or uh, paying employees or um, uh, advertising uh, on uh, home improvement channels. Or it it doesn't include any of those costs. This is just the cost of buying the paint. So that is cost of goods sold. Uh, then of course there are several other costs. Uh, so one one important cost that a lot of companies have is called depreciation. And uh, depreciation is essentially uh, when, when a company buys an asset, uh, say, say uh, a, a factory or something like that. Let, let's say a company builds a factory for one, $1 billion. Uh, but then uh, the factory is going to last the company 10 years. So for the next 10 years, the, the factory is going to stay operational. So instead of deducting the $1 billion at the beginning, uh, saying this is the cost of my factory, what companies do is uh, because this factory is going to last 10 years, it's like um, $100 million uh, for each of the 10 years, right? That, that's equal to the 1 billion cost of setting up the factory. So instead of deducting 1 billion in year one, what they do is they deduct 100 million in year one and 100 million in year two and so on for 10 years. And so this 100 million, which is reported for 10 years uh, on the income statement, that is called uh, depreciation. So, so depreciation is another major cost uh, for, for a lot of companies. It's, it's a non-cash cost. So uh, the cash goes out the door when the factory is built. Uh, it, it doesn't go out the door over the period of 10 years. But uh, depreciation as an expense is recorded on the income statement uh, for those 10 years and not just once when cash goes out the door. So depreciation is another major expense. Um, then we have uh, other, other kinds of expenses like um, se selling and marketing. So lo lots of companies have, uh, uh, they, they employ full-time sales staff uh, to, to, to sell their products and to offer support on their products and so on. 
they they do lots of marketing advertising online advertising advertising in tvs newspapers etc so uh, they they have lots of advertising expenses this all comes under uh, sales and marketing expenses so companies have those expenses as well and in addition to that uh, companies will have general and administrative expenses uh, which is basically kind of a catch all for uh, various corporate functions that a company has so companies may employ uh, uh, people to do uh, they may employ accountants to prepare financial statements they may have legal services they may have uh, 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 they, they they may have to hire uh, and maintain a hr department so so all, all these things uh, fall under general and administrative business expenses so we already see that companies have so many different kinds of expenses and these expenses are all uh, itemized and recorded on the income statement so you can go in uh, if you if you read the income statement of a company these expenses will be broken down into many different categories and uh, so so the sales or revenue is the top line and then all these expenses eat away at the top line and finally what you're left with at the bottom line uh, is uh, after all these expenses is called operating profit and it's not the uh, total profit the company makes because um, well the company may have borrowed some money and it may have to pay interest on those borrowings and so on so uh, those uh, have to be subtracted from operating profit before you get uh, what is known as pre tax profit and then the company may have to pay taxes on that and so after paying taxes what you are left with uh, ultimately is net income or that is the amount of money the company makes and a statement that gives you all the uh, the sales that the company makes all the various kinds of expenses um, uh, the the amount of interest the company pays the amount of taxes the company has paid etc uh, all of it uh, in a in a in a list and finally the the top of the list uh, starts with the sales the bottom of the list gives you uh the net profit or net income that the company has made that statement is called uh the income statement now um when when you read through an income statement there are a few things that i like to look for so there are five main things that i look like to look for in an income statement um so different people may look for different things but the, these are kind of uh, five key things to look for in an income statement the first thing i like to look for is growing sales so i want the top line at least revenues to be growing over a period of time because if this company uh, keeps selling less and less and less uh, every year um, in in um, so, so in in 2020 it sold less than what it sold in 2019 and so on uh, then uh, to to me it it looks like the company doesn't have any real competitive advantage or anything it, the the demand for its products uh, is not stable it's going down with time and so i'm 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 not comfortable investing in those kinds of companies so i i like to look for companies that are growing sales uh, the second key thing that i like to look for is gross margins that remain steady with time uh, either steady or if possible growing so um, why do i look for steady gross margins so most companies they will have a set of suppliers and a set of customers okay so what companies do is they get uh, products uh, raw materials from their suppliers and then oh, once they get this raw materials uh, from their suppliers they sell 
they, they process these raw materials into finished products and sell it to their customers. Some, some variation of this happens at pretty much every company. And so what is most important is here is this company that's sitting between a supplier and a customer. And how much power does this company have in this relationship? So the company has a relationship with its suppliers. It has a relationship with its customers. How much power does the company have in each of these relationships? Uh, so if you, if you take a company like, um, say, Costco, it's got an enormous amount of power in negotiating with its subscribers, uh, 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 negotiating with its suppliers, right? Uh, so, so if, uh, if, if I'm a maker of a particular kind of, um, I don't know, condiment or something like that, let's, let's say I'm making salsa um, and uh, Costco comes and tells me, okay, we'll sell your salsa in, in all our stores. That itself is, is going to increase my revenues so much. Just the fact that my salsa is being kept on Costco's shelves is going to increase my revenues so much. So I will be very, very happy or uh, I, I, it is in my interest to do whatever Costco says. So if Costco wants me to change my packaging or if Costco wants me to give them a better price and so on, they've got an enormous amount of bargaining power with me in that relationship. So uh, the, the amount of bargaining power that a company has with its suppliers uh, kind of decides how good a deal it strikes with its suppliers in terms of uh, uh, how much it pays for the raw materials it buys, how much, uh, when it pays for it. So Co Costco may say, okay, we'll take the salsa from you today, but we, we can only give you uh, the cash for it three months later. Uh, so we, we can't pay you right away. And I may still accept it because it's Costco. If it's some small mom and pop store, I may say, no, no, I'm not interested in that deal. But because it's Costco, I, I may have to say yes to that. So. Uh, how do you judge how much power a company has with its suppliers and with its customers? One way to do that is to look at gross margins. Um, so if, if a company is able to maintain steady gross margins over a long period of time or growing gross margins, what it essentially means is that it has a, a good bargaining position with both its suppliers and its customers. Because uh, if, if, the sub, if, if the cost of the raw materials goes up, for example, so um, maybe we are, we, we are dealing with something like Starbucks and the price of coffee beans goes up or something like that, uh, it doesn't matter uh, that much to Starbucks because number one, it has these great deals that it has struck with suppliers. So it is a little bit insulated from the broader coffee market. And secondly, when the price of the raw materials goes up, it can also increase the price that it charges for a latte or something like that from its customers. So the result is that the gross margins uh, of, of Starbucks, which is essentially the gross profit as a percentage of revenue and gross profit is revenue minus the cost of goods sold. The gross margins of Starbucks remain relatively steady with time. And this tells me that Starbucks is in a very, very favorable bargaining position with both its suppliers and its customers. Ideally, we want to invest in companies that control, that have control over their environment. And one way to measure, or one way to judge how much control a company has over its environment is how, how much control does it have in its dealings with its suppliers and how much control does it have dealing with its customers. And 
one way to measure that is how steady have gross margins remained over a period of time. Uh, the other thing I like to look for, the, th the third thing I like to look for uh, is this concept called operating leverage. So uh, suppose, suppose we have a company uh, that has say $100 in sales and let's say uh, expenses are $20 and so, uh, uh, or, or expenses are $80 and so uh, net income is $20. So um, the, the sales that the company makes is $100 uh, of those sales, uh, the various expenses, including depreciation and interest and taxes and selling general administrative, all those expenses together, uh, they come to $80 of those $100 and the remaining uh, $20 is profit. So uh, this is a 20% profit margin because profit is $20, sales are $100, so profit margin is 20%. Uh, now, suppose this company manages in the next year to increase its sales from $100 to $150. So in year one, the sales are $100. In year two, the sales uh, have increased from $100 to $150. So uh, that is essentially a 50% jump in sales. So uh, uh, sales, sales have increased by 50% from $100 to $150. Now, it turns out that in many companies, when sales increase 50%, expenses may increase 50% or even more than 50%. So if expenses also at this company increase 50%, so uh, expenses previously were $80, and now the expenses have increased 50%, so the expenses are now $120. And that means the profit is $150 of sales minus $120 of expenses which is uh, $30. So the profit is $30 out of $150 in sales. And so the profit margin is still exactly the same, 20%, 30 out of 150. But suppose our company was such, such a great company that when sales increased from 100 to $150, expenses didn't go up from 80 to 120. Expenses just went up from 80 to 100, say. So sales, uh, have have increased 50%, but expenses have increased only 25% from 80 to 100. Uh, so what would happen to the profits? Profits earlier were $20, 100 minus 80, but now profits are 150 minus 100, which is uh, uh, $50. So profits have more than doubled. So, so uh, the profits were earlier uh, uh, $20, and now the profits are fifty dollars, so uh, that 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 is an increase of one hundred and fifty percent. So what what has happened is that sales have increased fifty percent, but profits have increased one hundred and fifty percent, simply because expenses haven't grown as fast as sales. Expenses have grown at a slower pace than what sales have grown at. This concept is called operating leverage. So. Uh, if you want to double your profits, you don't have to double your revenue. A smaller increase in revenue uh, is enough to double your profits. So companies that have this kind of operating leverage where uh, profits can grow quickly, even if sales don't grow that quickly, uh, those companies are very, very valuable because every extra dollar of sales that those companies make, a bigger and bigger fraction of that dollar falls through straight to the bottom line, which can be taken out by the owners of the business. So 
businesses like this are extremely powerful. And you can look at an income statement and figure out exactly what the operating profit of the company is and how fast it's growing and how fast are sales growing and are profits growing faster than sales. And if the profits are growing faster than sales, then that tells you that this company has great operating leverage. And this is one of the key things that I look for in an income statement, operating leverage. So, so far we've talked about three things. First thing is growing sales. Second thing is uh, steady or improving gross margins over time. And the third thing is operating leverage. The fourth thing that I like to look for is debt coverage. So what, what do I mean by debt coverage? Well, if companies have borrowed money, they have to pay interest on the borrowed money. And so I like to look at uh, the operating profit that the company makes, which is the profit before uh, interest or taxes or anything like that, uh, and figure out, okay, how much of this operating profit goes towards paying interest? And if a large percentage of the operating profit, let's say 80% of the operating profit just goes off to pay the interest on the loans, then I'm not interested in investing in that kind of company because it's a risky company. What happens if operating profit drops next year, right? Uh, so then the company may not have enough money to pay uh, its interest obligations. So ideally, I like to see a big gap between uh, how much profit, how much in operating profit a company makes and how much does it have to pay in interest uh, to uh, uh, on 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 its borrowings. So I, if 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 it pays say one one dollar of interest, I, I like to see at least three to four dollars of operating profit in there, so that even if operating profit um, say decreases by fifty percent or something like that, suddenly uh, they will still have enough money to pay off interest and uh, pay off their obligations. So there's going to be no uh, uh, they're not going to go bankrupt or anything like that for want of uh, um, money to pay uh, their obligations. So I, I like to see uh, uh, this kind of debt coverage and debt includes not just interest, but also principal payments. So there are some companies that uh, whose main strategy is uh, to keep rolling over these loans. So if uh, $1 billion uh, of uh, loans come due today, what they will do is they'll go borrow another $1 billion and then use that $1 billion to pay off this $1 billion of uh, loans that are coming due today. And that is a fine strategy that may be uh, able to work for a while, but sooner or later, if something happens in the credit markets, if, the, if they are not able to borrow the money at, at attractive terms and so on, this beautiful machine will come to a halt. And so I, I like companies that are able to pay off both their uh, interest and their principal payments. Whatever money is required to pay off all of these obligations, I like, to, I like companies that can pay them off from cash flows and from operating income, not just by borrowing more uh, to pay, uh, uh, borrowing from Peter to pay, pay Paul kind of thing. Uh, so so I, I like companies that can pay off their liabilities uh, through the, the cash that they generate, not, not just through um, rolling over their debt. So that's the fourth thing that I look for in the income statement. How much do they pay uh, to service their loans versus how much uh, money do they actually make? Uh, the, the last thing that I like to look for is uh, per share results. So uh, you can have a great company. Um, it can keep growing revenues. It can have great operating leverage and all that. But ultimately, your results as an investor uh, will depend on what the results of the company are on a per share basis. 
And if the company is increasing its number of shares, uh, for example, by, by giving employees a very generous stock-based compensation package or something like that. And so uh, the, the number of shares outstanding in the company, if it keeps increasing at a fast rate, then all these kinds of things, uh, operating profits and uh, uh, operating leverage and uh, gross margins and all these things, uh, the benefit of all that uh, can be nullified if the share count is increasing too quickly. So I like to see not just uh, improving results on a, on a company-wide basis, I also like to see improving results on a per share basis. And most income statements, they will tell you how many shares are outstanding, some, some weighted average number of shares outstanding over that particular period. And so when I compare last year's income statement to this year's income statement, I don't like to see the number of shares uh, grow too quickly from last year to this year. So what, what is a reasonable rate uh, at which the number of shares can grow? I like to keep it uh, under uh, half a percent um, or 1% at the most. So I, I don't like companies that are diluting their shareholders by more than 1% per year. Uh, but but of course, that's a judgment that each individual investor has to make for themselves. So so these are the things that I like to see in an income statement. So uh, income statement is absolutely important for an investor to um, learn how to read. And these are five key things that I like to take away from a company's income statement before I invest in the company. Now, of course, there are some caveats. Income statements are not perfect. So for example, one caveat is not all growth is good. So we had an earlier episode on this, uh, this same money concepts podcast where we talked about how some kinds of growth can be helpful and some kind of growth can actually hurt the company. Uh, so I just said that I like to look for growing sales in a, on a company's income statement, but are those growing sales good? Or is, is this the kind of growth that's going to help the company or hurt the company? Well, uh, I like the kind of growth that's that helps the company, obviously, but it's not possible to tell whether the growth is good or not just by looking at the income statement. You also have to look at not just how much uh, growth the company is able to achieve, but how much capital that growth takes and where the capital is coming from and, and things like that. So uh, those things require a combination of uh, reading the income statement and reading the balance sheet as well, and maybe even the cash flow statement to try and figure it out. So not, not all growth is good. So just because we see growth on an income statement uh, doesn't mean that uh, the, the company is doing well or anything like that. But uh, seeing growth uh, is better than not seeing growth on, on the income statement. So I still like to uh, filter companies that are uh, by the criteria that they are growing sales. Uh, the, the second kind of caveat is that income is not equal to cash flow. So uh, there is this uh, wonderful saying that says uh, um, uh, in, in, income is an opinion, uh, cash is reality. And what it means is that there are so many assumptions that go into this derivation of this net income figure at the bottom of the income statement. So for example, if, if a company buys an asset, uh, is the useful life of an asset eight years or 10 years? Uh, nobody really knows when the company is buying the asset, right? Uh, it's it's a long-lived asset, but it may last eight years, it may last 10 years. So should depreciation expense be higher or lower? So these are all estimates. 
and uh, so uh, th there is a certain amount of uh, guesstimation that goes into what net income is and so it's not the same as just because a company reports one dollar of income does not mean it has one dollar to give to its owners so uh, we have to look at how much of that income is actually converted to cash and available for the owners to take out and and things like that so income is not equal to cash flow uh, that that is the second caveat when looking at the income statement. It's not enough to just look at uh, the net income. We should also analyze how much of it is converted to cash uh, at a company. Uh, and and the third and final caveat is uh, there are lots of companies that these days they invest through the income statement. And when companies do things like this, uh, they spend an enormous amount of money on R and D and things like that. Uh, but these. Uh, these expenses are essentially investments, but they are not accounted for as investments and depreciated. Um, so, so they are not capitalized. They don't go through the balance sheet. They all go through the income statement. And this may not reflect the true economics of a business. So when you look at an income statement, uh, what happens is uh, the income that we see on the income statement may actually be understated. So the, the real business, the economics of the real business may be much better than what we will conclude if we just look at the income statement. So sometimes we may have to make adjustments to the income statement to account for this. So that is the third caveat with going through the income statement. So broadly speaking, uh, this is what an income statement is. These are the things that I look for in an income statement, but it's also important to bear in mind that there are these caveats when looking at the income statement. So that, that's all I wanted to cover in the in the introduction. And uh, so uh, I'd be happy to take callers. So uh, when, when you're calling in, if you if you want to talk about something else that you look at in an income statement that you found useful, please share that information with us. And uh, if you just have a question for how I look at one particular thing or how I account for uh, certain kinds of uh, expenses in an income statement or something like that, please go ahead and ask those questions. Be happy to answer. Uh, so the next caller is uh, Casey. Hi, 10K. When you're looking at uh, the income statement and you look at the operating income, the pre-tax income, and the net income, which one do you tend to focus on when you're looking at the multiple that you're comfortable with? I know Warren Buffett often says pre-tax income is what he looks at. What do you look at? Well, uh, Warren Buffett does look at pre-tax income, uh, but pre-tax income in, in some cases may not be representative of economic reality. So I'll give you one example. Suppose the company has been making losses for many years, right? Mm -hmm. So now, of course, I'm buying this company because uh, I'm hoping that in the future, they are going to be profitable. Um, and uh, but, but for the last several years, they have been running at a loss. And so uh, what happens is uh, they, they will have a reserve uh, called a, a loss carry forward. So essentially, because they made losses in all the previous years, uh, this year's profit is netted out against those previous years of losses, and they wouldn't have to pay any tax on this year's profit because they made losses all these years. Now, um, so, so they may say, okay, this year we made a profit of uh, uh, you know, $100 million, but because we made losses in the last five years, uh, we are not paying any taxes on this $100 million. So the entire $100 million is net income. Right mm -hmm. now, the question we have to ask ourselves is, uh, is this representative of economic reality? So if the company is going to if, if this is 
the new state where the company is now profitable and they're going to turn a profit year after year, then uh, in the long term, will uh, they will have to eventually pay taxes because this uh, whatever uh, uh, loss that they are carrying forward from year to year, uh, that loss is eventually going to diminish and become zero. And pretty soon they'll be uh, paying taxes and um, uh, they'll probably be paying taxes at the at the federal uh, rate for the federal income tax and then plus state and local taxes and things like that. So when I look at the long term economics of this company, uh, yeah, they do have losses. Uh, uh, they, they can take advantage of their losses right now to not pay any taxes. But then eventually uh, they will have to uh, start paying those taxes. And so current economics is not really representative of the long-term steady state economics that I expect for this company. So in those cases, in cases like that, where I expect the tax rate to change. So this was a kind of an extreme example where the company was paying 0% tax and then it's going to go up to uh, the, the federal 21% plus maybe some state taxes, so call it 25%. So the tax rate is going to go from zero to 25%. Uh, in, in the future, if the, com- the company continues turning in profits. Uh, so th- there's a big change in the tax rate, right? From zero to 25. So yeah. if I anticipate that uh, companies are, uh, a company is going to have a big change in tax rate, uh, I should actually look at, uh, uh, even if the company is not paying taxes right now, what I like to do is I like to assume that they will pay taxes and then use that to analyze the economics of the company. So in, in that sense, I'm I'm actually looking at post-tax results for the company, not just pre-tax results. So pre-tax results are very useful and Buffett sets a lot of store by them, but um, he uses it mostly as a way to figure out how good the economics of a business is. So uh, how much uh, taxes are not really something that uh, a company can control. So if, if the law says you have to pay uh, so much in taxes, beyond a point, there's not much the company can do. They have to pay that much in taxes. Whereas uh, if you look at something like uh, uh, sales and um, uh, selling general and administrative SG&A expenses or something like that, that is much more within the control of the managers of the company. And so they can do things to optimize that. They can try and strike better deals with suppliers. They, they can do all these things to optimize the pre-tax profits. But there's only so much you can do to optimize post-tax. So so whether a business is a good business or not, um, the pre-tax figure may tell Buffett more than the post-tax figure. But of course, taxes are a a way of life. Uh, (laughs) You can't get get rid of them. So uh, ultimately, in analyzing the economics of the business, uh, what is important is the money that can be taken out by the owners at the end of the day. And that is always after-tax money, not pre-tax money. So you have to look at both. Okay. Makes sense. Um, you talked about number four, the debt coverage. And you said that you like yes. to invest in companies where they can pay off their debt and principal from their operating income and their ca- you know operating income or cash flows. Yes. How how many years worth of operating? Are you talking about paying off within one year of their cash flows, or two years, or three years? And then also, um, a second question to that is: Sure. What do, What do you make of the argument that companies that have enormous earning power um, may not need to be as conservative as companies that don't? Uh, yeah, they are both very good questions. So, 
a uh, lot of people i know they they have this kind of metric in mind so they will say okay my uh, total debt shouldn't be more than x times my operating income so um, for example if I, uh, if x is 3 then they may say okay i i don't want to see more than 3 uh, times my operating income uh, as debt in the company um so essentially what what that means is Uh, with three years of worth of operating income, the company can pay off its entire debt, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I am not a fan of that kind of thinking. So I like to look at the debt that exists on the books. And if you if you look at the notes to the consolidated financial statements, what you will see is uh, uh, when when a company takes out debt, you you will see the maturity of the debt. so um if if you take a company like home depot for example it it has something like 35 billion dollars of debt or something like that all this debt is not due uh, um at at one particular time so home depot has staggered its debt in such a way that there's some debt that's due in the next year there is uh, there may be some debt that's due 3 years from now there may be some some debt that's due only in 2055 or something like that so i i don't like to treat all the debt equally so what i uh what i'm trying to see is if some debt is due in one year then can that debt be paid off from operating cash flows and cash on hand in the next one year so if if, if a company has uh, say 5 billion dollars of debt that's coming due in in two years time and let's say they have 1 billion dollars of cash right now uh, on their balance sheet which they don't need now can the company make 4 billion dollars in the next 2 years uh, uh in order to pay off this 5 5 billion dollars of debt that is coming due so they already have 1 billion so they need to make another 4 billion uh to pay off this 5 billion dollars of debt and they need that to happen in the next 2 years so can they actually do that does this company have enough earning power to be able to uh pay off the debt just from the cash that it generates not by taking on even more debt right so so i like to look at the maturity schedule as well while making that call i don't just like to take the total debt and divide it by operating income and say i don't want more than uh, uh x x times operating income or or anything like that I, i don't mind a huge amount of debt if it's going to come due only in 100 years from now <laughs> whereas i i really mind a huge amount of debt coming due in the next year right right uh, yeah uh, so that that is one aspect of debt coverage and the other thing is uh, can companies that have uh, great earnings power can they afford to be a little less conservative uh, the answer is yes absolutely so if if a company um, has very predictable earnings uh, like like for example a utility electric utility operation or something like that uh, even even regulators they like to see more debt on the balance sheet of of these companies uh so simply because uh they, when when they have debt they can improve uh their returns to the, to owners uh through leverage and they can improve returns to owners without charging customers more for electric power or whatever so regulators like to encourage these companies to take on a certain amount of debt and it's not that risky because uh the the cash flows that these companies get are uh, very predictable it's not like um you know uh, 200000 people are suddenly going to cancel the electricity to their homes or whatever uh, immediately so uh, c- 
companies that have uh, strong earnings power and durable earnings power, uh, they can afford to be a little less conservative with the amount of uh, debt that they take. Uh, but of course, uh, you know, what, where, where is the line, right? Uh, how much debt can a company take and still remain reasonably conservative? Well, that, that depends on what the economics of the business look like and what future cash flows uh, it can be reasonably expected to make and uh, how much of those future cash flows are being used to just service the debt. So uh, each investor will draw the line at a different place. Uh, but I, I like to see uh, at, at least uh, three or four times. Uh, so so, so if, if a company requires $100 million in interest, um, and uh, and principal obligations. Um, if if I conclude that the company has to make hundred million dollars a year just to satisfy interest and principal obligations, I like to see it make at least three hundred or four hundred million dollars in operating income, uh, just to be safe. Uh, but but that's me. Each investor has to draw the line at a different place. Okay, thank you. Us. So the next caller is uh, Richards, who's a regular caller on the show. Yeah, hi, 10K. Hello. Um, I have a couple of questions. First one would be about um, depreci- depreciation, okay? I I just, I try to get my head around this concept and I kind of understand how it works. What I do not understand is, why was it like invented for whose benefit uh, is it for shareholders benefit so that we can see more normalized returns or or what's the idea be- be behind depreciation thank you uh, absolutely so i am not a hundred percent sure what the history is and for whose benefit it uh, depreciation was invented um, but essentially, there are uh, two different kinds of accounting. There is the there's something called cash-based accounting, and then there's something called accrual-based accounting. And these are uh, like two big schools of accounting. And uh, so, cash-based accounting is whenever you spend money, uh, when when cash actually goes out the door, you record it as an expense. So if, if you buy uh, some, some machine for your company and um, let, let's say you spend $100 million on that machine, uh, you record a $100 million expense the day you uh, write the check. Uh, and uh, uh, the, well, the, the day the check is cashed, maybe. Uh, but accrual-based accounting looks at it this way. It says, okay, uh, you bought this machine and let's say this machine is going to last five years, right? Um, so it's not fair to uh, take this entire hundred million that that was spent for the machine and treat it as an expense in year one because what that's going to do is that's going to depress your earnings in year one and in year two three and four it's going to inflate your earnings because the expense is already recorded in year one and so if you, if you look at year two's earnings they may seem very high uh, but that's just because you bought this machine and you didn't have to account for it as a cost in year two. Uh, so this is not so, really a, uh, yeah. So it's basically for normalization of earnings. Uh, yeah, you you could say that it's for normalization of earnings, but then uh, you'd have to ask yourself again: is uh, so the way depreciation works, at least straight line depreciation, is 
you take the 100 million and then divide it by uh, how many ever years. So let's say, let's say five years. So that, that gives you a 20 million cost for each year, right? Um, but, you know, inflation is always a factor. And so five years later, um, let's say in the, in the last year of the machine's operations, you're um, uh, accounting for this machine at $20 million per year, right? But the, the replacement cost of this machine may be much higher uh, simply because of inflation. So is even this 20 million, is it, um, it's a normalized figure, yes. It's better than taking the 100 million and sticking it all in year one. But does it reflect true economic reality, uh, even the normalized version? That that is not clear. So for that, you may have to um, actually take this machine and figure out how much it would cost to buy this machine today, and then um, uh, divide that by five and pick, uh, say that is the true cost of operating this business. We just happen to be lucky because we bought this machine five years ago when prices were lower, right? So. Uh, it is a way to normalize earnings, but even the normalized earnings may not reflect true economic reality. Does that make sense? Yep. And if I can, one more question. So sure. you, you talked about margins. Yes. So there are at least three margins, gross margin, operating margin, and net profit margin. And I, I had a sense that you kind of stressed that gross margin margin is very important. Is it more important to use an operating margin and net income margin? Um, so I guess I look for different things. So with gross margins, I'm happy if they just remain steady with time. I, I don't really, uh, well, if, they, if, they, if the gross margins keep increasing with time, I'm even happier. But I, I don't really insist on that. I'm happy if the gross margins can remain steady over a long period of time. Uh, I don't like gross margins jumping around too much, but with operating margins, I like to actually see them grow with time because that's what tells me that the business has operating leverage. Um, so uh, I, I guess I'm, I'm looking for two different things from the two margins. Um, and the, the net margin, I don't look at it so much because uh, I, I it's, it's a function of uh, interest rates and taxes and things like that, things that the company doesn't have too much control over. So I, I don't look at net margins that much. Um, so I like to see what it is, but um, the, the bulk of my analysis I, I spend on trying to see whether gross margins are steady, whether the company has good uh, negotiating power with both suppliers and customers and uh, can its expenses grow slower than revenues? So uh, does it have operating leverage? So th these are the two, two main things that I look for uh, with respect to margins. Okay, thank you, thank you. Sure. Uh, so the next question comes from uh, Jay Blair. Hi, 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 thank hey. you. I'm a little late to this call in. I don't know if you covered this already, but my question, I have a, a question about the balance sheet and fully depreciated assets. I always wondered what happens to those assets when they get fully depreciated and they're still generating cash flow? How does one figure out where they are on the balance sheet at that point? Or do they just disappear? Uh, so once an asset gets fully depreciated, uh, it, it, it is carried at a value of $0, right? 
Um, so so if, if you buy an asset for $100 million and depreciate it over five years or something like that, then essentially after five years, the well, after, after one year, the asset will be carried on the books at 80 million. After two years, it will be carried on the books at 60 million and so on. And after five years, uh, the asset is carried on the books at zero dollars. That, that's equivalent to saying that there's no asset on the balance sheet. So the asset just uh, disappears from the balance sheet. But what happens if the asset hasn't disappeared in real life, right? It's still earning money. Um, um, it, it's still being used and it's still earning for the company and, and things like that. Um, so, so uh, you know, I, I work for a company and um, they, 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 they gave me a laptop and when they bought the laptop, they probably thought the useful life of the laptop is three years, but it's been six years and I'm still using that same laptop. So, um, uh, so what, what is that laptop recorded at uh, on the books of my company? I, I would say it's probably recorded at zero dollars. Now, um, there are some kinds of assets where uh, the company can uh, do a reappraisal. So it can say, okay, we record all these um, assets at $0 on our books, but they're not worth $0. So we are going to get these assets uh, appraised again by somebody. And then we are going to uh, include the assets at whatever cost, uh, uh, at, at whatever they're worth today. Um, and so they can do things like that. But this reappraisal usually uh, they they do it on the way down. So if if an asset is worth less than what it's carried on at the books, uh, that's when they do the reappraisal and they take an impairment charge and things like that. Usually, when an asset is worth more than what it says on the books, so in in this specific case, that the books say the asset is worth zero dollars, uh, but the asset obviously has some value. Uh, but, but usually. Uh, the, those assets are uh, uh, they are not reappraised and added uh, to the to the balance sheet just to be conservative. So it's so it's up to the investor to to look back and find out and 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 discover those assets are still in place. Those fully depreciated assets are still in place because it sounds like it depresses the the equity value when the assets carried at zero. But it's still generating positive cash flow for the investor. Uh, right, exactly. So if there are a large number of uh, these these kinds of assets that a company has, uh, then that that can mean uh, yes, it it's up to the investor to go and figure out uh, what what these assets are and so on. Uh, because there there's there's two things. One is uh, the company uh, is reporting a lower amount of assets on its balance sheet than what it really has, right? Uh, so that that may be a good thing uh, from a book value standpoint, uh, because uh, book value, true book value is actually higher than reported book value. That may be a good thing from an investor standpoint. But at the same time, uh, if if the investor is interested in calculating return metrics, uh, like how much how much profit the company makes divided by um, um, how, how much assets the company is using or something like that, that's the return on assets. Now, if the assets are understated relative to their true value, then uh, you may get a very high figure for the return on assets, but uh, the, the economics of the business may not really, that may not reflect economic reality. So the true return on assets may be lower and that may not be such a good thing uh, from an investor's uh, standpoint. So, so um, overstating or understating assets has, has two kinds of effects.
Ah, thank you. That's a very interesting explanation. I always wondered. Thank you very much, Tenke. Sure, absolutely. Uh, the next caller is Vinod, who's also a regular caller. Hi, Tenke. Uh, hey, Vinod. Hope, hope you're doing well. Uh, thanks for taking, taking my questions. Um, I have a couple of questions. I'll start with the basic one, the diluted EPS and uh, the normal EPS. Which one you would use in your calculation? Why? I know I understand the diluted EPS is, includes the stock options and other uh, aspects, right? And my second question is on um, uh, some of the mature businesses, um, like the likes of Home Depot, uh, Star, Starbucks, and Costco. Those businesses are, even though the revenue is growing, basically the revenue is outpacing the uh, the bottom line, basically the net income or maybe the operating income. So, right. so how do you see or how do you analyze uh, uh, these businesses? Because when you say operating leverage, basically you are saying the uh, the uh, sales is uh, the revenue is growing, and also the 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 net profit is basically uh, outpacing the the revenue growth, but it is slightly reverse here because the revenue right. growth is slow and net net income is basically it is uh, outpacing the revenue. So how do you see that and how do you analyze that? My final question is on the um, subscription business, right? How do you right. see the, how do you analyze the operating leverage? Because the scale is basically exponential over there. So one, uh, I will give you an example, say 1 million subscribers um, and then maybe uh, they are scaling up to 1.1 million. The right. fairly the the sales pretty much going to be same, uh, and there might be some minor variation in terms of bringing new content, but uh, the amount of effect it is going to impact in the bottom line will be very high. So how do you analyze these businesses? I know you also talked about some of the some of your interesting subscription business in the past. Probably if you can give some examples, probably that would be really good. Thank you. Uh, right, absolutely. So the first question was uh, the diluted uh, versus normal. Uh, EPS, and um, I, I like to look at the diluted numbers, but uh, there is again a caveat here, which is that uh, I, I like to figure out how much of the dilution uh, comes from the company issuing shares and how, how much of it is being offset by stock buybacks that the company is doing. So, uh, so, so if you look at the, the, the fully diluted uh, share count, it may be going down as a um, uh, over over time uh, because the company is doing buybacks. But if a large portion of the buybacks are just going to offset the dilution that has been created uh, because of stock-based compensation, then uh, that's not really a good thing. Even though the, uh, the the diluted EPS will keep increasing and the number of shares will keep decreasing, right? So uh, I like to look at not just um, the the shares outstanding. Uh, I, I I like to look at what what percentage of the shares are being given away each year in uh, stock based compensation, and how much of that is being bought back by the company through buybacks and things like that. I, I like to see exactly what's happening to the shares uh, outstanding over over a period of time. Uh, so so that 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 is the first question, and and also secondly, um, the 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 share counts that are reported on the um, income statement, they are uh, what's known as a weighted average share count. Uh, so if, when, you, when you want to calculate the number of shares outstanding, 
uh, over a period of time, say this is a one year income statement, right? For let's say the, this was an income statement for 2021. Now, what 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 does the number of shares to use to uh, calculate earnings per share? You have to take the earnings and then divide it by the number of shares. But the number of shares on January 1st is different from the number of shares on December 31st because uh, the shares are constantly being created and given away as uh, executive compensation. And then the shares are also being bought back through repurchases and, and so on, right? So uh, what, what number do you use for the number of outstanding shares? So, so there's, there's a procedure for this and it's called the weighted average uh, share count. So you, you, you basically take the average number of shares that are that are outstanding and then um, so, so you take the number of shares on January 1st and then January 2nd and January 3rd and so on take all the 365 numbers and then divide by 365 or so, something like that uh, not not exactly but some something similar to that so uh, what happens is that the the numbers that are used for this kind of uh, earnings per share calculation uh, they tend to be a little bit outdated so uh, the the number that is used uh, for 2021 earnings, for example, for Apple, uh, Apple is uh, buying back shares constantly. But uh, the number that is used for uh, calculating EPS is not the number of shares uh, that is outstanding at the end of the period. It is some average over this entire period. So one thing I like to do is I, I like to... Uh, divide it by the number uh, that's outstanding at the end of the period just to see how the numbers will change if if the company made exactly the same amount of uh, money this year as last year uh, then but but because its share count is now lower uh, what what effect does that have on uh, earnings per share and and things like that so i i like to always be cognizant of the fact that this uh, the the number of shares that 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 are used in the earnings per share calculation, that's an average. That's not uh, the number of shares that are outstanding today. So that, that's that's one thing. Uh, the, the, the second question is about uh, operating uh, deleverage, uh, essentially. So, so there are some companies where uh, revenues are growing, but costs are growing even faster than revenues. So it, it turns out that uh, the, the profits are actually, for, for every extra dollar of sales, the amount of uh, profit that actually falls through to, to the bottom line is less and less. Now, as a rule, I don't like to invest in companies like this, uh, but there are some dominant companies that have uh, the, the, this kind of economics where uh, profits may not be rising as fast as revenues, um, especially in high inflation uh, periods, in periods of high inflation. Uh, what happens is that the costs uh, rise first and only then the company uh, responds by raising prices or whatever. So it may take one, one quarter or one year uh, for the, the profits to keep up uh, with, with, uh, with revenue growth and, and things like that. So uh, yeah, I mean, I, ideally speaking, companies should be able to predict their future costs and so on ahead of time and raise prices and things like that. But most companies tend to be reactionary. So uh, I, I like to give, especially in high inflation environments, uh, I like to give these companies um, maybe one quarter or two quarters to see if the uh, figures are improving and so on. Uh, 
but if not, then I have to factor that into my valuation models. So I may assume that revenues are growing, uh, but then over a period of time, I have to assume that margins will shrink. And so um, what is the effect of both the revenue growing and the margin shrinking over a period of time? And then uh, I have to value that uh, based on the future cash flows that an owner will get. Uh, and the, the third question is about subscription and uh, subscription businesses and operating leverage. So uh, software businesses and subscription businesses are just wonderful from an operating leverage standpoint. So uh, if, if, you, if, if it costs, uh, so, so these days with the internet, you know, di distribution is almost free. And so um, whatever it costs to create, uh, say a YouTube video or a, or a newsletter issue or some, something like that, if, if it takes somebody, say, 10, 10 hours of effort uh, to, to create something like this, then sending that to 100 people versus sending that to 1,000 people, it, it, it costs almost the same. So uh, the, 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 there's very little extra cost to having 1,000 subscribers uh, uh, as opposed to having just 100 subscribers. So every extra subscriber that signs on, uh, paying $10 a month or whatever, that is almost ten dollars a month straight to the bottom line, and that's a great feature uh, of uh, subscription businesses. They are they are capital light. Uh, they don't require an enormous amount of capital to start or anything like that. They have phenomenal operating leverage because every extra subscriber um, uh, that 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 signs on, uh, almost all the money that that subscriber gives you fall straight to your bottom line. So I, I like subscription businesses a lot. And um, uh, in fact, uh, I, I'll give you a, a little uh, sneak uh, preview. Uh, so, so next week, um, I'm planning to write a thread about uh, uh, subscription businesses and the economics of, uh, the economics of newsletters in, in particular. And uh, I'm, I'm hoping to have uh, this guy whom you may all know uh, from Twitter, Borrowed Ideas. I'm, I'm hoping to have him as a guest uh, next week. So if you have more questions about these kinds of subscription businesses, <laughs> you can ask him. Uh, he runs a very successful uh, newsletter on, on Fintwit and he, he's got a large number of subscribers and so on. Much appreciated. Thanks, Trinke, as usual. Sure. Wonderful. Uh, so the next caller is Casey again. Yeah, hi. Um... You often cite Starbucks as an example, so I pulled up Starbucks income sheet, and I just had a couple questions in the more uh, innocuous line items that uh, we're not as familiar with. Um, so, okay. for instance, uh, yeah, their gross profit, and then it says their SG&A, the general administrative, and then it jumps all the way down to the reconciled depreciation, and it's a positive number. It's $1.5 billion. The previous year was also $1.5 billion. Why, why are these numbers positive? What does the reconciled depreciation mean? Uh, I will have to look at Starbucks's. Uh income statement to figure that out you, you said reconciled depreciation yeah so you know typically i think we when um we're thinking about depreciation we're, we're talking about um operating expenses spread out over a, a long period of time and it and it right and, and it and it, uh taking as as it as it's being an operating expense where this shows as a positive number um well i, I guess because huh. it's it's um it's been increased, but um, so are there are there two two numbers on the 
on the income statement uh, like one one of them says normal depreciation and the other one says reconciled depreciation or something like that yeah so one of them says income statement depreciation and then another one says reconciled depreciation both on the on the income statement itself yeah the income statement depreciation is has nothing there just a bunch of lines and then the reconciled depreciation has all the numbers going back you know 10 years oh um i am not sure what that means but if if it is a positive number uh then uh my my guess is they might have changed some assumptions about uh the the useful life of certain assets and so on so so if you uh if if you buy a coffee machine at starbucks uh thinking that it will last for 5 years say say some some espresso espresso machine that costs $20000 and it, it you think it's going to last 5 years um but then it actually lasts 10 years um then you may uh mid course during during those 5 years uh you, you may uh change your assumption from uh it taking 5 5 years uh, for this asset to die down to 10 years and so uh it may end up that this is a positive number simply because you've taken the costs early on in in some earlier period and in this period you're saying okay the costs that i recorded earlier were too high and so this, in this period i'm going to adjust for that by recording a negative cost or some something like that that that's what uh, well uh, the fact that something is reconciled uh, it it when you say reconciled it means you're you're reconciling something to something else right and uh, so th- this would be my first guess but this is a guess i i i don't know what uh, exactly this is but if you look at the notes to the financial statements uh, they they should give you more information because this is definitely not a not a standard thing right so uh, if if you look at the notes to the financial statements they they should uh tell you w- what exactly this reconciliation is and what is the procedure for uh for for doing it and things like that so are are you getting this directly from the 10k or are you using a website like ticker or something like that to get this uh the, the this financial statement why charts why charts okay um so uh, i i don't know i, th- I think it's it's also possible that white white charts may have um done something that's uh, uh, may may have some data in there that's actually not not in the in the 10k so you may you may have to go and uh, read the um of uh, read read the financial statements in the 10k because i'm i'm looking at the latest 10k and there Uh, i see store operating expenses other operating expenses depreciation and amortization which is a positive quantity uh, that's about 1.4 billion dollars uh, and then general and administrative expenses and things like that so i i don't see this reconciled depreciation on the uh, 10k uh, for starbucks so there may be some um, so, some way in which y chart takes the information in the 10k and then chooses to display it on their website that that is also possible okay and and uh, does amortization mean the same thing as depreciation because you see different line items you say 
uh, accumulated DNA, uh, and then you also see separate items just for depending right. on. Uh, so amortization and depreciation are the, the concept is exactly the same, but they're used for different kinds of assets. So depreciation is used usually used for tangible assets like a coffee machine or something like that. Mm-hmm. Amortization would be with an intangible asset, like for example, goodwill or um, uh, uh, some patent that the company has acquired or so, so, something like that. Uh, it's the same concept. The cost of uh, acquiring something is an upfront cost, but that cost is recorded over a period of time. But it's just what that something is. Is that something a tangible asset or an intangible asset? Usually when the asset is tangible, it's a depreciation. And if it is intangible, it's usually uh, called an amortization, but it's the exact same thing. It's probably a lot harder to figure out how to depreciate an intangible asset than a tangible asset, I imagine. Well, um, if you get a patent, say, and the, and the patent has a, a life of 20 years, then y- 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 that, that gives you pretty much uh, a way to uh, amortize that patent, right? Now, of course, before the 20 years are up, if someone else comes and uh, discovers an even better way to do something and renders your patent uh, useless, <laughs> then, then of course, uh, it's uh, you don't have a use. Uh, it's probably recorded on the books. You're probably carrying it at a very high value relative to the true value of the patent. But if you, if you get a patent and it has a 20-year life, then there's a reasonable argument to be made that okay, you amortize it over 20 years, right? Right. Sure. Okay. Thank you. Sure. Hey, Tenke, can you hear me? Yes. Okay, yeah, thank you, 10K, for taking my question. Sure. Uh, my question is, so uh, there are three different uh, concepts, uh, return of uh, equity, return on capital employed, or return right. on invested capital. Uh, so yes. which, one you, which one you will use when you analyze the company? Uh, that, that, that is a great question. Uh, so we had an entire uh, episode on on exactly this uh, uh, the, the various return okay. ratios and and things like that. Uh, but mm-hmm. in in a nutshell, uh, if I want to understand uh, the the future economics of a business, or if if I want to predict what the future economics will look like, um, it's important to look at not just how much capital is required for the business but also mm-hmm. uh, where the capital is going to come from. So uh, if, if a business requires, say, say uh, what, $1 billion of assets uh, to conduct its operations, but 800, of that, uh, 800 million of that one, $1 billion is going to come from uh, suppliers or something because accounts payable exceeds accounts receivable or some, something like that by 800 million, uh, mm-hmm. then... Uh, the, the owners are putting up only 200 million of that 1 billion. Uh, and so uh, for what the owners put up, uh, what is the return that they are seeing? So uh, return on equity sort of captures uh, that, 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 that kind of, um, um, uh, uh, that, that kind of return ratio, the economics that owners will, will see. Uh, but at the same time, when when there is a uh, when the company uses uh, a lot of debt, for example, uh, now mm-hmm. um, now there there are two uh, 
two kinds of considerations here. First, uh, how, how good a business is something. Uh, so so if, if you take a company like Starbucks, for example, uh, their equity is actually negative because uh, they, um, uh, because I just pulled up uh, this uh, Starbucks uh, 10K. Uh, so I can, I can look at their balance sheet and it turns out that they have uh, something like a negative $5 billion uh, equity. So when when equity is negative five billion, how do you calculate return on equity? That that does not make any sense. So if I want to figure out how uh, how good a business Starbucks is, uh, I I have to look at something like return on invested capital, because uh, a, a large part of why that equity is negative is because uh, they have a lot of debt, and uh, mm -hmm. uh, when you take the invested capital. Uh, invested capital doesn't really make a distinction between whether uh, that capital comes from debt or whether it comes from equity. So it's just mm -hmm. how much capital was invested and what return the company is able to make on it. So th that would be a better indication in Starbucks's case of why, uh, of how, how good a business Starbucks is. Uh, then of course, there's mm -hmm. this, uh, there's also this capital employed uh, uh, by by the business. So so, uh, the, well so so if a business has a large amount of cash on its balance sheet or uh, keeps a large amount of marketable securities or something like that, uh, so there is mm -hmm. all this um, the uh, this extra firepower on the balance sheet, but that's not actually mm -hmm. invested into the business. Then I have to sort of take a call on. Okay, why is the business keeping all this cash on hand, uh, all these marketable securities, when it's not investing it? Is it going to? Does it have plans to invest it in the near future, or is it just hoping that uh, some uh, some great deal comes along? What what plans are there for that cash? Is it just going to stay on the balance sheet forever? Because if if it does, then that's not really much use to an owner. If a uh, business is just going to keep a ton of cash and never use it, that's not a much use to an owner. But if they are going to use that cash in some acquisition or some future, uh, they're going to make some future investments or they're going to buy back shares with that uh, or give out a special dividend or some, something like that, uh, then I, I have to uh, try and figure out what exactly they, they will do with this cash. And then based on that, I have to fig figure out uh, whether I want to invest in that company or not. Uh, so that's the, the distinction between how much cash is in the business and how much cash has actually been invested into operations. So that's why both return on invested capital and return on capital employed, they're, they're both important. Got it. Uh, okay, sure. I will go over that uh, your previous session about regarding this. But the one last question, when in return on invested capital, right? In, in the like invested capital, so in, generally, I use like uh, equity uh, plus long-term debt minus uh, excessively cash. That's uh, that's how you calculate invested uh, capital or different way? Well, I, I like to look at um, uh, all the sources of capital on the balance sheet. So um, when I, uh, so the liability side of uh, the, the balance sheet will tell me, um, that the capital falls into three three different buckets. So one, one bucket is equity capital, as you said. Uh, the second mm -hmm. bucket is is debt, uh, and mm -hmm. and the third bucket is float. Uh, so so float is everything like uh, accounts 
accounts payable and, and, and things like that. So, so the liability side of the balance sheet, uh, uh, that, that are, I, I try to classify uh, the capital in, in these three groups. And then if you add up mm -hmm. all the three, you will get the total assets on the assets side of the balance sheet. So if I want to just calculate invested capital, I will take the assets and I will uh, 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 subtract out the float. Uh, now, of course, all the capital may not be invested into the business. Some of it may be just surplus cash that is held on the uh, books, right? So for example, if I'm analyzing Google or something like that, they may have, uh, I don't know, $100 billion of cash just sitting on the balance sheet. That's not really invested capital. So I will subtract out that, uh, I, I will leave a normal amount of cash, what, what I think the business needs for uh, for its day-to-day -day operations, but all the excess mm -hmm. cash over and above that uh, limit, I, I will subtract out and then try to figure out what the return on invested capital is. Got it, got it. Sure. Um, yeah, thank you very much. I have other questions, but maybe I will go in line and then I will ask. Sure, thank you so much. Thank you. So the, the next caller is, Ricardo. Hello, Ricardo, I think you're on mute. Are you hearing me now? Yes. Okay, good afternoon. It's the it's my first time on your program. I really appreciate this. I oh, appreciate you tuning in. Yes, I've been. I actually listened to your session last week um, with um, Azwat, and I found it very informative. Also, I... absolutely. So this is a definite step down from last week. <laughs> no, no, no. I actually like this discussion because you know that's how I learn by people asking, and I find it more informative i understand from questions more than probably reading and i really appreciate you taking the time to have this program available sure um, thank you worldwide because i'm calling from i don't know if you're familiar with jamaica oh nice yes so i really thankful for being here my question is you mentioned about um a company buying like a coffee machine and a machinery, and then it's accounted for over a period of time. Right. But what if this company, say your Starbucks, bought real estate? No, how is it this accounted for in the books? Because ah, yes. So that's uh, my question. Absolutely. So, so real estate typically has uh, two kinds of components. Uh, so if, if Starbucks went and bought land, right? and then uh, decided to build a coffee shop on, on top of it. Now, usually what happens is you buy the land at a particular price, and then you have to make some improvements uh, to, to the land. And th those improvements are called some, something like leasehold improvements or some, something like that. So there are some costs that Starbucks uh, spends just to buy the land. And then there are other costs that Starbucks spends to get that land uh, ready for use as a Starbucks or something. They, they may, I don't know, plant some trees there or uh, whatever level, level they land or uh, I, I don't know what, what, what they do to land before it becomes ready to put a coffee shop on. But whatever they do, 
so there are two kinds of costs and land usually uh, is carried on the books at cost and not really depreciated uh, uh, at all. Uh, whereas these leasehold improvements that uh, Starbucks makes to, to the land, uh, those costs are depreciated over a period of time. So when, when a company buys real estate, uh, th there are these, uh, these two kinds of costs that are associated with it, and they're both depreciated at different rates. So land may never be depreciated. Um, it may be depreciated um, using a lifetime of infinity. So, so it may never be depreciated. Whereas the, the leasehold improvements and other things like that, things that are done to make the land suitable for business, those may be depreciated much faster. So there are these uh, these two two different. Um, uh, it's it's the same real estate, but it's being accounted for in in two different uh, ways. Uh, the the other thing is from time to time, companies may reappraise the the land. So uh, the, the the real estate assets on on their books. So uh, if if a company bought bought some land very long time ago and that land is significantly appreciated and, and so on, uh, companies may uh, want to reappraise that and uh, restate the balance sheet to uh, uh, more closely reflect that economic reality. But um, in a, that, that, that is kind of optional. So uh, a lot of companies uh, keep real estate on the books at historical cost. And I've seen lots of uh, uh, theses by value investors saying, um, so, for example, when when Sears was uh, uh, when when Sears was doing very badly uh, as a business, but a lot of value investors they they said that um, Sears has all this land on its books, and the land is worth so much of money, and that's not being reflected in uh, in the operating profits or th things like that. Even though Sears may be losing money every year, uh, the land is worth so much, uh, and uh, and so Sears is worth a lot of money and, and things like that. So um, investors frequently try to do things like this um, uh, to, to figure out whether uh, the, the, the real estate assets carried on the books are worth more or less than uh, what, what, what the books say. Okay, thank you very much. Sure. And keep up the good work. Thank you. Uh, so, so the next caller is uh, Luis Pedro. Is it is it Luis or Luis? It's Luis. You said it right. You got it right. Okay, perfect. Yeah. Thanks. Hi, Tenke. Huge fan from from Guatemala here. So, I wanted to ask, um, what if you have any thoughts on why uh, EBITDA is such a popular metric? Uh, it's it's used both as a, as a performance metric in the corporate world, and it's also uh, used for uh, multiple valuations. So I, I wanted okay. to know if you have any thoughts on why why this one is used instead of, for example, EBIT, just operating income or free cash flow or any other, other metric from the income statement. Well, um, so the, the, the sarcastic answer is that uh, EBITDA is usually much higher than <laughs> EBIT or free cash flow or something like that. So so if, if you don't uh, subtract out depreciation, um, and and uh, uh, interest and taxes and all that, uh, you, you can make it look as though your business is earning so much more than it actually is. And uh, so, in a, in a bull market, uh, 
people do all kinds of things to try and justify uh, high valuations. So putting a multiple on EBITDA may work better uh, if you want to justify a particular valuation than putting a multiple on free cash flow or owner earnings or so, something like that. Uh, but for for some businesses, EBITDA may be a reasonable uh, a, a reasonable metric, uh, especially if uh, depreciation and um, if it's a modern kind of business, it doesn't have a whole lot of fixed assets or anything like that. So depreciation and amortization is is negligible. Say, um, then then EBITDA may not be such a such a bad metric, but then you know why not just use operating income in in that case, right? Uh, so there are a lot of investors. Uh, so Charlie Munger uh, has this famous statement that whenever you see the word EBITDA, uh, replace it with this phrase "bullshit earnings." And uh, so, so <laughs> Warren Buffett also um, has this thing. Uh, Warren Buffett is typically more more polite than Charlie Munger. So he says things like. Look, depreciation is the real cost. Just just because it's a non-cash cost, uh, doesn't mean uh, it doesn't exist. Because depreciation represents uh, the cost of something that was some investment that was made a long time ago. And so, if if a business wanted to earn a certain amount of money, it required that investment. Without that investment, it will not be able to earn this money. So, uh, depreciation and amortization is frequently a very real cost and Moreover, in most businesses, what happens is because of inflation and other things, uh, depreciation is actually understating the true economic cost of owning and operating an asset. So um, a company may record a $100 million depreciation for an asset, but if it had to actually go and buy that asset today, uh, the, the cost may be $200 million. Uh, um, So uh, in, in that case, depreciation would actually be understating uh, uh, true cost, and if you if you take out the depreciation and look at EBITDA, that may be even worse than understating depreciation, right? So it really depends on the kind of business that you're looking at. In most businesses, depreciation is a real cost and has to be taken into account. So I, I don't really look at EBITDA too much while uh, doing uh, any any kind of analysis. Okay, thanks for your insight. Sure. Appreciate it. Sure. Uh, so the, the ne next caller is KP. So let, let's see if KP's uh, microphone works this time. Hi, hi, Tanke. Can you hear me now? Yes. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you very much uh, for doing this. And I'm a first time caller. So uh, I apologize hey, if to I'm the show. asking. Thank you. I apologize if I am asking you the question regarding the balance because I know we're discussing about the, the income statement today. But right. but my question to you is, um, so the free cash flow is basically the operating cash flow minus uh, the capital expenditures. Do you know in what instances um, the companies can have free cash flow number which is more than the operating cash flow? Um. Because I'm, I'm trying to, uh, the, the thing is, I can understand like if they if they selling some assets instead of investing in it could cause that. But still, right. um, do, you, do you think like how the free cash loan number in this instance can, um, can not be the right, right metric to look at? 
because I'm trying to um, the company uh, pharmaceutical company that I'm looking at right now has a, mo- a free cash flow number which is higher than the operating cash flow and if you if you look at their operating cash flow it looks like it's not even covering their interest uh, expense oh so okay. um so i am not a hundred percent sure uh about that so if you define free cash flow uh to mm-hmm. be equal to operating cash flow minus capex then mm-hmm. the only way that free cash flow can be higher than operating cash flow is if capex is negative this is uh, just a mathematical statement so uh how, how many companies have negative capex uh so my my guess is that capex at this company is not really negative it's uh, my guess would be that free cash flow is not defined as operating cash flow minus capex it may be operating cash flow minus capex plus a whole bunch of other adjustments and those other adjustments are what is causing this particular definition of free cash flow uh, to spit out a number that is greater than the operating cash flow this this would be my guess because um, I don't think there are too many businesses that have negative uh, capex requirements, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so for for example, uh, um, so so lo- lots of companies they they have acquisitions and divestitures, right? So basically, right. an acquisition is when a company goes and buys a, another company. But equally common is a divestiture, where what what a company does it it, it sells off a piece of itself um, right. uh, 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 to to some other company. So if if this uh, uh, so so where where exactly do you account for the cash uh, that comes in when a piece of the company is sold off to another company? Now it's not operating cash flow because this is not uh, the company is is a pharma company. It's it's not its business is not uh, selling pieces of itself, right? Uh, so it it won't come under operating cash flow, but it may be it may come under the definition of free cash flow. because free cash flow is not uh, not really a, a, a gap defined quantity so companies have a lo- lot of leeway in how how they get to define free cash flow so if if the company defines free cash flow as operating cash flow minus capex uh, min- minus acquisitions plus divestitures so something like that and this particular year the company had a divestiture but didn't have any acquisitions then uh, free cash flow could be higher than operating cash flow but you'll have to actually look at the financial statements uh, the the cash flow statement to figure out how exactly they ended up with that number uh, so the next uh, caller is ravi with uh, another question so let, let's make ravi the the last caller for today okay so my last question about uh, return on incremental invested capital right um so that we calculate for the uh, what is a course uh, investment requirement for the future growth right um, uh, and how i mean okay okay my sense is the way i calculate i will calculate the current years the depreciation and amortization cost okay versus capital expenditure this year so difference is that is a new investment um Right. So basically, maintenance uh, capex versus the for the future growth uh, investment. Okay. And and then I will okay that investment. How much uh, profit we will generate the next year? The ex uh, the right. more profit we generate, right? That's how you will calculate or something different way. 
that's a reasonable way to uh, uh, to calculate uh, uh, mm-hmm. return on incremental invested capital so so basically what you're doing is you're taking um, uh, the the capex that was required um uh, the, the the capex that is reported on the cash flow statement that tells you how much was invested into the business but then you're netting mm-hmm. out uh, you're taking out depreciation out of it because you're assuming that uh, of the uh, of, of the capex that is required to uh, uh, achieve this growth that the business had uh, part of it was maintaining capex and the other part of uh, part of it was growth capex so the maintenance mm-hmm. capex just uh, is just there to keep the earnings at the current level whereas the growth capex is what actually produces the growth so you're dividing mm-hmm. capex into two buckets here and then mm-hmm. uh, one further assumption is that you're you're assuming that the maintenance capex whatever the company needs just to maintain its earning power not to grow it that mm-hmm. is exactly equal to depreciation and amortization so whatever the company charged in depreciation this year is exactly mm-hmm. equal to how much it has to spend this year to preserve that earning power so so uh, once once you take take that out what you're left with is uh, the component of capex that is not maintenance which is growth capex and you're saying okay how much did they spend in growth capex and how much has it increased earnings by and so uh, the the change in earnings divided by uh, this the spend in growth capex that is equal to the uh, the, that that is equal to the return on incremental invested capital so that's that's the logic that you're using and that that is a perfectly reasonable logic to use uh, except that in in a, in a lot of companies uh, it turns out that uh, maintenance capex uh, is frequently more than depreciation not equal to depreciation so um, we we had this example where a company has this asset which is depreciating over 5 years but if it wants to maintain its earning power uh, it has to uh, the, the replacement cost of this asset is more than whatever they are uh, taking in uh, depreciation each year so if they are depreciating the asset at 20 million dollars each year doesn't mean they can replace the asset by spending that same 20 million they may have to spend more than 20 million to replace that asset and hence preserve their earning power so uh, mm-hmm. barring things like that um this is a reasonable way to get an approximate uh, idea of what return on incremental invested capital is got it uh, the the last question is because some company already invested for the growth uh, in the last few years or maybe amortization because they acquire some company but now in some of the balance sheet a cash flow statement i can see the current depreciation and amortization current year depreciation amortization uh, basically capital expenditure is less than the current expend uh, current uh, depreciation and amortization yes uh, so, so there are uh, a few companies where uh, capex is less than depreciation and amortization and yeah. uh, so that is because a, a lot of companies what they mm-hmm. they like to do is they like to overstate depreciation and amortization so if the useful life of something is 10 years uh, they mm-hmm. they deliberately assume that it's it's only going to be 8 years or something like that so so they like to overstate uh, depreciation mm-hmm. and amortization and what that does is it depresses uh, current year earnings but then mm-hmm. uh, it also depresses the amount of tax they have to pay right 
because mm-hmm. if you if you report lower earnings you have to pay lower tax so mm-hmm. if there is a way that you can overstate your depreciation expenses uh, mm-hmm. now of course there there are rules you can, you can't just um, uh, you can't just state whatever depreciation you want um, uh, there, there, there are rules about how much you can take in depreciation but there are uh, some uh, some ways you can do accelerated depreciation so essentially you can pull forward uh, depreciation uh, from the future to today mm-hmm. and then uh, because you take a greater hit to earnings you save on taxes so some some companies do that and if uh, with with companies that do that you you may very well find that capex uh, is lower than depreciation simply because they are taking much greater depreciation uh, charge than what they really mm-hmm. have to okay okay got it got it so is there any formula because then when we calculate dcf or some other formula we have to aid this part right because see this year the depreciation and amortization is a 4 billion dollar but capex is a 3 billion dollar uh, this year right. so it means next future some years we will get a lesser depreciation and the lesser am- amortization because current your capital expenditure only 3 billion so you may right. get a more operating cash flow right uh, yes uh, right so is there any way you calculate that one uh, or maybe any formula you use uh so buffett has this uh, this calculation in his uh, I, i think it was his 1986 letter but i'm not sure it's called owner 1986. earnings and mm-hmm. uh, so what what he does is he takes net income and then mm-hmm. uh, he he adds depreciation to it uh, mm-hmm. and then he subtracts out just the maintenance capex now uh, in in this particular case if if it turns out that maintenance capex is less than depreciation then this will mm-hmm. result in higher owner earnings right so owner earnings this concept it automatically takes into account these kinds of mismatches in non cash charges like depreciation okay. um, so it. so if, uh, and and then of course you have to make adjustments for working capital and and things like that but the, the the broad idea is you try to figure out how much cash you can take out of the business each year if mm-hmm. you're not interested in growing the business if you're just interested in preserving the current earning capacity of the business how much cash can you take out each year and that uh, very nicely handles uh, these kinds of overstated depreciation understated depreciation all, all that sort of thing got it got it and and, and the last part is uh, so capital uh, raise um, one uh, that will consider as a inv- invested capital when we calculate the return on invested capital uh, we use a capital raise um, whatever in our balance sheet that we use for the invested capital so but the the what part I, i i i don't get that one because capital raise agreement whatever in your balance sheet that next year you will pay as a as a uh, the raise agreement fees uh, why it is a invested capital well um so you're talking about operating leases and things like that on the balance sheet yeah yeah yeah, yeah. operating lease yeah so uh there are some definitions of invested capital that include the operating leases and there are some right. definitions that don't include, don't include the operating yeah. leases yeah. so um 
it's up to the investor. You you can decide if you want to include them or not. Now, typically, okay. if uh, mm-hmm. if the operating lease assets, so so on on the when you have an operating lease, there are liabilities on the balance sheet for the lease payments, but there's also Correct. an asset on the balance sheet uh, called the right of use asset or something like that, and Correct. they are usually approximately very close to each other. So one one way to uh, sort of calculate uh, return on invested capital is to just disregard this asset and this liability from the uh, balance sheet, uh, and mm-hmm. then calculate your uh, return on invested capital without uh, taking this asset into account. And I I frequently do that. And okay. Uh, so so, that, so that, that that way you don't have to take that into account. Yeah, that, I think that makes sense because yeah. Sure. Thank uh, that, you very that's, much. That's my way of doing it, uh, but I don't fully understand the accounting behind operating leases and and things like that. So what whatever I say about operating leases, you should take with a grain of salt. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you very much, Antenka. Uh, Absolutely. So uh, thank you all very much for showing up. Uh, I really enjoyed this session. Uh, I love talking about financial statements, as you can probably tell. And uh, I, I like to drone on and on about various accounting intricacies and how to model different things in financial statements and things like that. Thank you all so much for indulging me. I hope uh, you, you, you guys learned something from this as well. And uh, if, if, you, if you liked it, uh, please stay on with us. We, we do this every, every Sunday at, uh, at 1 p.m. Eastern. So uh, if, if you think this is useful, share it with your friends. It's, it's completely free. Um, so th- thank you all very much for sh- showing up and see you next Sunday. Bye-bye.